0: A reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 11 and 12. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. and bow down to me, saying, get, get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute, forever you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened, from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. And touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of the house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel of the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go, out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Shiloh, thank you very much for reading that so beautifully. Good morning, Rogers Park. It's a joy to be up here this morning bringing god's word to you my name is phil adams i get to serve as one of the the pastors here in our network mainly over in Ru- west rogers park but this morning we are in a series going through the book of exodus last week uh, lee preached us through the first nine plagues if you were here that god sent down on egypt uh here's a little bit of a, a recap um, of where we are in the story even going back to the very very beginning we know that moses he was born A little baby in in a lot of danger his mother floated him out onto the river Nile hoping that he might escape Pharaoh's command to kill all the Israelite baby boys but Pharaoh's daughter found Moses out in the river raised him in the palace until, until one day Moses went out to enact some justice for his people. He's seen, he's seen an Egyptian beating an Israelite and he thought he looked this way and he looked that way and he stepped in and he killed the Egyptian but he was seen and he had to run and flee Egypt and then he spent the next 40 years in the desert until God spoke through a burning bush and said, Go and I will go with you. Go back to Pharaoh. Go back to Egypt and tell him I told you let my people go. So Moses reluctantly goes back, and Pharaoh says, no. So what happens next? God begins to send plagues on Egypt. He sends these plagues as judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their, for their cruelty, for how they've treated the Israelites over the past 400 years, keeping them as slaves, But when God sends these plagues that we looked at, all of them last week, or nine of them last week, God isn't only bringing judgment on Egypt, he's dismantling Egypt. He's breaking down their society, he's leveling it, he's stripping it of all of its pomp and prestige, the most powerful nation at that time in the world. He's bringing Egypt to its knees. At this time, Egypt wasn't too different to Chicago, in the sense that Egypt was a pluralistic society. Egypt, like Chicago, had many, many gods. Although maybe we do not have idols in our kitchen that we cut some banana for in the morning. Maybe we do. I'm not sure. But in Chicago, there is idols that we serve. Money, ambition, sex, health, autonomy, security, comfort, gods that we serve in the hope of blessing, gods that whisper to us, serve me and your dreams will come true. And these gods are pulling on us, drawing on us. You need me. Devote your life to me. I will please you. And they are luring us away from lasting joy and worship of the one true God. Israel for the past 400 years have lived in Egypt, surrounded by these false Egyptian gods, the god of the river Nile, the the sun god, the goddess of the sky, the god of crops. And with each of the plagues, the true god, by turning the river Nile to blood, dismantled the god of the river Nile. Turning the day into darkness, God dismantled the sun god. By sending heel on Egypt, God dismantled the goddess of the sky. And with a sheet of locusts, he literally shred to pieces the God of the crops. And as God was doing this, he was telling Egypt, there is one true God who stands above all false gods and he can prove their impotency in a second. And he was telling Israel, showing Israel, I am the only God and I am your God and I've heard your cries. If we zoom out, A little bit and we take a sweeping look over the book of Exodus what we're going to see is and we're going to see this in the coming weeks what God is doing throughout the book or the whole book of Exodus as we said in the past few weeks he's fulfilling his covenant promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15 that Israel will become a nation and that through them as a nation he will reveal himself to the world that God will show himself to the world it's his plan of redemption for the world But God doesn't just want any old nation, and we're going to see this more and more in the coming weeks. He doesn't want any old nation with any old beliefs. God wants a particular people with a very particular culture, a holy people, a people set apart, a people who deeply believe and understand who they are and know the story of the world and know their story, a people who understand who God is and who God is not, a people who worship him and no one else and nothing else a people who can reveal who God is to the rest of the world. God's plan, even before the fall, was to enact his reign through his people across his earth. So today, still, God desires a people, a people who deeply believe the gospel, a people set apart in a pluralistic society, People with a particular culture who know what is true, what is truth, who know the story of the world and embody the love of God to the world. And yet, one of the questions that we're going to ask this morning is how do we embed our identity deeply within ourselves? How do we embed our identity deeply within ourselves? How do we stay true? How do we stay believing? How do we not turn back? How do we not forget who we are? Let's pray. God, we come to your word. God, we are grateful for it. God, we thank you for how Shia read it, God, that we can listen, God. We can enter into the story that you've written, God, so that we can be in it and see ourselves in it and feel it, God. So God, thank you for engaging us this morning. God, keep our minds attentive. Keep us focused on you, God. We ask your spirit to move this morning in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Nine plagues have not changed Pharaoh's mind. That's where we enter in chapter 11 today. The Nile has been, the river Nile was turned to blood. There has been an infestation of frogs. I cannot imagine infestation of frogs (laughs) lice locusts flies all their livestock have died the egyptians have been afflicted with boils heel and darkness and still pharaoh would not let the israelites go then we get to chapter 11 where it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I'm going to bring on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go. He will drive you away completely. There's going to be one more plague, and after this one, Pharaoh isn't going to let you leave. He's going to push you out the door. There's going to be one more plague, and after this one, you're going to be gone. Freedom. Verse 2. God says to Moses, speak now in the hearing of the Israelites so that they ask every man of his neighbor and then every woman can ask of their neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. There is anticipation that the Israelites really are going to get set free. Moses, is instruct- Moses instructs them to ask their Egyptian neighbors for provisions that they can take with them. And it says that God gave the people fever in the sights of the Egyptians, which in one sense was God's hand literally motivating the Egyptians just to give away their gold and their silver. But they also likely gave them their provisions and their possessions because they had experienced nine plagues. <laughs> and they were ready for the ordeal to be over. Here whatever it takes just go but not Pharaoh Moses stands before Pharaoh in verse 4 and tells him what's going to happen since he still won't budge Moses said thus says the Lord God about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt will die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle, there will be a great cry throughout all of the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. I wondered or have wondered preparing this when you read this. I couldn't really avoid wondering would the pean? Would the pain felt by the Egyptians be the same pain that we would feel if all of our eldest children died at midnight tonight? Did the Egyptians have some kind of cultural coping mechanism that would allow them to cope with the pain better than we would? Maybe they had some coping mechanism like they had big families and losing one would have been bad but manageable. Maybe they were so used to children dying during childbirth or through diseases that they were kind of numb to the pain. I kind of would like to think that they had some kind of cultural coping mechanism, but I don't think they did. Since Moses says, when this happens, there will be a cry throughout all of the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor there ever will be ever again. Egypt, like all ancient cultures, was a, was a collective society. Today, we are incredibly individualistic. We struggle to represent anything more than our own individual dreams and desires. But in a collective society, all, everyone from newborns to the elderly, are seen as representatives of the whole So even though we find this hard to grasp and hard to get our heads around, the death of the firstborn would not have been experienced as the killing of the innocent in Egypt. It would have been experienced as the killing of us. Judgment on us. Judgment on Egypt. Something terrible is going to happen in Egypt. But in this passage, it's clear the pain that's emphasized is not the pain felt by the newborns. They slip away at midnight in their sleep. The passage emphasizes the pain felt, the judgment experienced by those left behind grieving their children. Then Moses tells Pharaoh, when this happens, all your servants are going to come down to me and they're going to bow down to me and tell me, get out. You and all the people who follow you. Then it says, Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Nine plagues. (laughs) And with the tenth on its way, Pharaoh is still defying God and not letting the people of Israel go. One of the things that usually gets noted here in verse 10 is that it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and did not let the people of Israel go which usually raises some eyebrows. How can Pharaoh be responsible if God was the one that hardened his heart? That's not how we should look at this verse or how we should read it. A more accurate way of looking at it is that God sealed Pharaoh's heart in a hardened state or God sealed Pharaoh's heart in the exact state that Pharaoh wanted his heart to be in or God gave Pharaoh the heart that Pharaoh wanted to have. Which brings us to chapter 12. And this is where this plague turns a kind of different direction to all the other plagues. All of the other previous plagues have been directed towards the Egyptians. But this plague, this time, it isn't only directed towards the Egyptians. This final plague is directed towards the Israelites as well. Whoa, whoa. Whoa. Are we reading the right story? Somebody check your Bible. Did we miss something? Is this not the story of the Israelites held captive by the Egyptians? Is this not a story about freedom for the oppressed and judgment for the oppressors? Is this not a story about God standing with the innocent and standing against the guilty? I mean, we are uncomfortable with Egypt crying out in anguish like never before, and they are the bad guys. Why would the plague of the firstborn dying ever be on Israel, the good guys? The victims, the oppressed. The tenth plague takes us to a place that the other plagues don't. It's it's an uncomfortable place. Because we like evil to stay out there in the lives of the other. We like to make quick distinctions between the perpetrator and the victim so that we can highlight sin done to us, not by us. We can sanitize ourselves from the reality of prison and sentencing and execution and criminality as realities that our lives don't actually connect with. We always stand in the jury, never the jail. And the problem is that we are prone to see great evil out there as a sign of our goodness in here. And yet. We have not improved morally in the tiniest bit just because someone else has deteriorated morally. So when we read the story of Israel in Egypt and we see the evil, the sin of Pharaoh oppressing the Israelites, keeping them as slaves, refusing them their freedom... And we see Israel suffering. We label one guilty and the other innocent. And in the particulars of what historically happened, that would be right. Israel were victims of Pharaoh's evil. Israel were not sinful in the way Pharaoh was. And yet they were sinful in the same sense. Because we're all sinful in the same sense. In the sense of pride. In the sense of greed. In the sense of selfishness. Before sinful is our actions, before sinful is our thoughts, sinful is humanity's position. Michael Horton, a theologian, writes, Every religion and every culture in the world professes some commitment to that which the Bible identifies as the law written on the human conscience. Whether it's called the Tao, Dharma, Karma, Torah, the universal declaration of human rights, or the little voice within, no matter how we try to suppress, distort, and deny it, our sense of being personally responsible for sin is universal and natural. Our sense of being personally responsible for sin is universal and natural, or as the Word of God would say, Romans three twenty three for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. First John 1, it, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I feel it. You feel it. We feel it. Israel felt it. When I lose my temper with my kids, I don't just feel a sense of failure or a sense of regret. I feel like I owe them. And my natural response is that I want to give them something quick. What can I do to fix this? There, there's been a breach. There's been a breakage in our relationship, and I love them, and I am uncomfortable. I don't want there to be a break. I don't want there to be a breach in our relationship. So I ask what would be an adequate offering so that they will forget what I just did or said, so they won't see it, they won't remember it when they grow up? I want to fix it quickly. I don't want them to feel the pain of my mistake. I don't want our relationship to stay broken. Can I give a hug? Would an apology be enough? Do you want me to buy you something? Internally, I want to make things right again. And on a small scale, it's it's manageable and it's bearable in a sense. It feels fixable. Here's a treat. But what if over the next 30 years, all of the sharp-tempered comments and selfish behavior add up? What then? What if 30 to 40 years pass and we live with the weight of, I wish I hadn't said that, I wish I hadn't done that to my children, to my parents, to my friend, I wish they still talked to me. What if 40 years later we look back and we say, I wish, it, I wish I hadn't walked out. I wish I hadn't cheated. I wish I'd stopped drinking. What if by the end of our lives we are left asking, will there ever be anything I can do to make things right again? What if it doesn't take until the end of our lives? What if you're already there? What if our sin has already caused irreparable damage? We may not be sinful in the same way as Pharaoh was, but how many years of being sinful in the same sense is going to leave us with a list overflowing with regrets, standing before God one day realizing, is there anything I will ever be able to do to make things right again? And what will we do when we realize our sin runs so deep for so long that there is a debt we owe God that we cannot pay? What then? When we get to chapter 12, Moses and Aaron are listening to God. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 20, God is speaking to Moses and Moses' brother Aaron and giving them instructions what to do on this night when judgment comes what to do and then verses 20 to 28 Moses and Aaron pass on these instructions to the people of Israel they tell each household on this night go out and find a lamb one year old without blemish a lamb without a single imperfection and as the sun is setting you will all as one people kill the lambs and you will pour the blood into a basin, which you will take outside, and with the branch of a hyssop tree, you will smear the blood across the top of the door. And you will smear the blood on the two doorposts. And then inside your homes, you will roast the lamb. You will make unleavened bread, bread that doesn't need time to rise. Stand together with your belts fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. To, and eat with haste. Get stuck in, because there's no time to waste. All across Egypt, huddled in homes as the sky turned navy, were the people of God standing below blood, ready, ready for judgment, ready to leave. And at midnight, as promised, God didn't send heel. He didn't send locusts or frogs or lice. He didn't send darkness. At midnight, God came himself. And judgment passed through the land, striking down the firstborn in all of Egypt. And when God passed over the homes of the Israelites, he looks and he sees the blood of the lambs. Above the door and all the doorposts. And he passes over. Verse 30 to 32 of chapter 12 reads like this. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go, get out. From among my people, both you and the people of Israel, go, serve the Lord as you've said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, be gone. Then Exodus twelve forty. The time that the people of israel lived in egypt was 430 years at the end of 430 years on that very night all the hosts of the lord went out from the land of egypt it was a night of watching by the lord to bring them out of the land of egypt freedom when we started this series studying through the story of exodus freedom was the tension freedom was the goal freedom was what gripped us we had a people who were being crushed by slavery, crying out to God, and God remembered, God heard, God saw, God knew, and now freedom. I love that in verse 41 it says, on that very day Israel left Egypt. It actually says that Pharaoh called Moses while it was still night to tell him, up, go out from among us, go. Go. So as the sun rose the next day, Israel were on their way. Can you imagine the excitement? 430 years of slavery. They have gold and silver on their rocks in their rucksacks, no more slavery, no more beatings, no more whippings, no more humiliation. The shackles are off. Freedom. Can you imagine the conversations? I'm going to guess that they kind of were up late. I don't know if they even went to sleep that night. Guys, what happened last night? You ever been away at a a weekend with some friends and something strange happens the night before and you wake up and you're thinking, what was that? Were we all... Guys, were we all like dressed up in the house with belts on and like sandals on? Did you... Did we eat a lamb with a staff in my hand? Did I do that? Yeah, I did it too. Maybe there were some more somber questions as they started walking out of Egypt. Guys, why do you think the plague came on us? Why the lamb? Why the blood on the doors? Or I wonder if someone said, guys, I'm the oldest of my siblings. I'm the firstborn. You think if the lamb hadn't died, it would have been me. Did the lamb die instead of me? Did the lamb die in my place? Did the lamb die in my place? Or do you think some of the parents... We're walking, holding their eldest child with a little more gratitude. Charles Taylor is a philosopher who writes a lot about what he calls the social imaginary. If you bear with me for a second. And what he is saying when he refers to our social imaginary is that there is a way that we imagine the world to be even before we think about it. There is a deep, deep understanding as to what our lives are about, even before our brains make any conscious decisions. And the big point he makes is that we come to an understanding of reality, not be as simply in cognitive ideas and theories that make us think in abstract ways. We come to an understanding of reality more deeply through stories, pictures, and narratives that make us imagine who we are. And if we aren't carefully exercise of our imaginations becomes the exercise of our faith. Why didn't God just free Israel? Why didn't he just send one more plague on Egypt that would have wiped them out? Why did he send the plague on Israel as well and then instruct them as to put the blood of the lambs on the doors? Because what you will find as you read through your Bible starting in Genesis is that God is transmitting a message. What you will find as you read through your Bible starting in Genesis is that God is dropping a bridge trail for the world to follow. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, it's what theologians call the proto-evangelium. Adam and Eve have, have been deceived by the serpent for the first time. And they have disobeyed God by eating the forbidden fruit. And now God is speaking to the serpent and he says, from Eve's seed, I promise one will come who is going to crush your head and you will strike his heel. And through a simple story and God speaking to the serpent, we are opened up to a very simple idea to look out for. A piece of bread, a crumb has been dropped. Something to look out for one that will suffer see it and you will be crushed but he will be hurt one who will suffer in genesis chapter 22 we read another story a difficult story about another firstborn this time god tells abraham take your son your only son isaac whom you love and go up to mount moriah offer him there as a burnt offering and they walk up the mountain when isaac says and when isaac says to his father we have the fire we have the wood but where is the lamb for a burnt offering to which abraham says god will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering my son they get to the top and abraham ties his son to an altar of rocks and then god says abraham abraham do not lay a finger on your son and then abraham lifted up his eyes and there in the bushes was a lamb And through a simple story, we are introduced to a simple idea to look out for, the suffering of a lamb in our place. And then we get to the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. And as the Israelites are walking out of Egypt, a new day has dawned, and what simple idea has been planted in their minds as they walk and they talk about the previous night. What seed has been planted that they wonder, that they think about Freedom through the suffering of a lamb in our place. Freedom through the suffering of a lamb in our place. But the breadcrumbs bread don't stop there. I love this. Just before, just before God gave Moses and Aaron an instruction as to what to do that night, God says to them in the beginning of chapter 12, verse 2, you see that calendar that you've been following along with everyone else? Well, I want you to start a new one just for Israel and this month today is going to be the beginning of your year happy new year and what god was doing he was centralizing their freedom from egypt within the jewish calendar he was making it central to who they were and when we read later on in chapter 12 god commands israel to remember their freedom from egypt from egypt every year with a celebration where there would be the slaughtering of a lamb to reenact the Passover meal. Every year, every year, Israel celebrated this meal from generation to generation. It became embedded within their culture and their identity. They would bake the unleavened bread and they would slaughter a lamb every year as a breadcrumb, as the transmission of a message. From them to their children, to their children, to their children, to their children. Freedom through the suffering of a lamb in our place. Freedom through the suffering of a lamb in our place. Freedom through the suffering of a lamb in our place. Leading forward to a particular Passover celebration where one day Jesus will sit around a table in Jerusalem. With his disciples. During the week of the Passover celebration. Where they'd be having their Passover meal. And in all four Gospels, we read how Jesus holds up the unleavened bread, representing how the Israelites had to leave in haste imminently because unleavened bread breaks, doesn't take any time to rise. Jesus holds it up, Jesus holds up the wine. Representing the basin of blood that was smeared above the door and the doorposts, but what you will not read, will you not? What you will not see is the centerpiece. Where is the key item that should be on the table? The staggering, the unexpected question that lingers in all four gospels is where is the lamb where is the lamb there was bread there was blood but where was the lamb rogers park all the bread crumbs lead to jesus behold jesus the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world as jesus was beaten As Jesus was stripped, as Jesus was whipped and hung on a cross, he paid our debt. The firstborn of God paid the overflowing debt of our sin that we could not pay. Israel needed delivered from Egypt, but they also needed a deeper deliverance that we need too. Maybe this morning you are looking at your life. And you are crushed by your regrets. That you cannot fix. You're being crushed by the mistakes of your past and your present. That is your slavery. You feel bound to your sin, bound to your failures, and Jesus came to offer freedom. He came to pay back and make right what we cannot. He came to be the suffering lamb in our place. And the question we have to ask is simple. Are we standing under the blood? Are we standing under the blood? This morning, are you standing under the blood? It's there that you will find forgiveness of sins. It is there your sin will be washed away. It is there your overflowing list of sin will be stamped and paid in full it is there you will be unshackled to run accepted into the loving arms of god this morning are you standing under the blood usually we stop but now we pray and then we go into communion but this morning because of such a fitting passage that we're going to flow, flow straight through. I'm going to invite the musicians if they want to come all night. So we're going to take communion here together. The two chapters that Shiloh read this morning, that we read this morning, they are a mixture of telling the story of the Passover. Telling it like a narrative. Telling the story but also what you will see as you read those two chapters, it kind of chops and changes because not only are you reading the story of the Passover, but you're also reading the instructions how to remember the Passover. As Moses is writing it, he doesn't even wait till the end to make sure Israel knows you're in this story. This is your story. As the Israelites walked out of slavery and as they walk out of Egypt, they walked into a season of Waiting. God had promised they would get to the Promised Land. But until then, they would have to walk through the wilderness. And even in the Promised Land, they would be surrounded by many nations and many false gods luring them away from the one true God. And so the question was for them, as it is for us, how would they embed their identity deeply within themselves? How would they stay true? How would they stay believing? How would they not turn back? And the answer is they would remember. They would reenact and remember, which is exactly what Christ commanded us to do. Matthew 26, 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body for you then he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink from it all of you this is my blood of the covenant which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins this is why I talked about the philosopher Charles Taylor earlier who said that we come to an understanding of reality more deeply through stories pictures and narratives that make us imagine who we are This is exactly what we do when we gather as the people of God and take communion together. We come to an understanding of reality through the God given elements that make us imagine who we are. We take the breadcrumbs of stories, pictures, and narratives that God has given us in His Word to remember our identity as the people of God, and we do this regularly. Together as a people, we stand together, we walk up the aisles together we rub shoulders with each other we eat together because God's plan even before the fall was to enact his reign through his people across his earth and that's who we are we are the loved by God we are accepted by God not only as individuals but as a family we walk together as brothers and sisters There's nothing that should remind us to love one another more like walking up these aisles together because it is in the walking and the eating together that we remind ourselves how God, if God has forgiven me, whom could I not forgive? We take the bread, we hold it in our hands, we touch it. Something tangible as were the nails. Something tangible to the touch as was the crown of thorns tangible as our rec- as resurrected bodies will be we remind ourselves of the realness of our salvation See ever this moment hold that bread as jesus did we dip the bread in the cup we see the blood swirling in the cup as the blood would have swirled in the basin in egypt we see the blood drip from the bread as the blood dripped down the cross savor that moment drink as christ drank the wrath of god on your behalf and we eat we take ourselves to the crucifixion of our savior we partake it is our crucifixion we chew we participate we acknowledge our choice that we were once that we are once again this week are choosing to take up our cross and follow We are entering a new life. We are leaving behind our old selves, leaving Egypt, a new creation. And we do this all as a meal, anticipating a future meal that is to come. Right now, we are sojourners. We are a people in waiting. Communion is a meal that looks back at the cross, but it also is a meal of anticipation while we wait and we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we walk up these aisles, we bring the future into the present. We lay down our worries, we lay down our fears, we lay down our finances, we lay down our failures. And just for a moment, we enter into the future kingdom. We revive ourselves, we refocus ourselves. But today, the question will still linger as we see the bread and we see the wine. And yet, the question that will still linger is where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? One day, Rogers Park, that question will be no more. We will be with him. We will feast with him. It says in Revelation chapter seven, we will look up and we will see a lamb standing as if it was slain. And we will sing worthy are you for you were slain by your blood you ransomed people for god from every tribe every language and people and nation and you will have made a kingdom of priests to our god and they shall reign on the earth how do we embed our identity deeply within ourselves how do we not forget who we are we take the breadcrumbs stories pictures and narratives that god has given us in his word and we breathe them in regularly together so to remember our identity as the redeemed people of god so if you in faith and belief choose to stand under the blood of christ this morning and if you are making that decision even for the first time today I invite you to come, to stand up in the aisles, to take the bread, to dip it in the cup, return to your seats. Let's pray. God, we thank you, God, that you make your message clear. God, we thank you that you did not leave us, but you left a trail of your truth for us to follow so that we might know who Jesus is and that we might know what Jesus did for us, God. So God, today we dip the bread in the cup. We look to the cross where we find forgiveness of sins, where we find redemption, where we see you paying the debt for our sins so that ours might say paid in full and that we may be welcomed, God, into relationship with you, acceptance in you. Jesus name.